Section 19 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 19. The Duty. The position of Belgium. We are, therefore, armed. It is not the power to act, but the will to act, which the government lacks, and I must add that I do not expect much from it, because the characteristic of its policy during the last few years has been complete acquiescence in everything which the sovereign of the Congo state has done. N. van der Velde, 1906 not reform, but revolution. Not the apothecary, but the surgeon. Not poulticing, but removal. Can the European people over whom King Leopold, a foreigner to them, rules as constitutional monarch and whom he in his heart despises, can they apply the remedy? Can they tear the races of Central Africa from that relentless grasp? Are they able to do it? Were they able to do it, could they shoulder the burden of introducing justice and good government where for fifteen long years massacre and pillage have gone hand in hand, a burden heavy, ungrateful, dangerous for so small a people, the more dangerous since their mental outlook on colonial enterprise has been greatly poisoned and corroded by the fetid example placed before them, between England and Belgium cling historical ties which make for the preservation of Belgium. The King of the Belgians is a bitter and malignant enemy of England. He has become so because England has supplied the pens and the voices which have exposed his African undertaking. But in England, if there is no particular admiration for, there is no hostility to the Belgian people. Almost everywhere among us it is recognised that they have been misled as to sentiment, duped as to motives, misinformed as to facts, irresponsible as to action, foully betrayed by carefully combined cooperation in intrigue. Hence it is that a very general feeling prevails in this country, in official circles, and outside them, that annexation by Belgium would constitute a solution most to be desired on varying grounds, of the Congo outrage. This hope has been frequently expressed. Let us then examine the possibilities. But in God's name, let our examination rest upon and start from the real issue at stake, the salvation of the Congo races from the rubber slave trade. Do not let us be decoyed by what may prove a mirage, capitulate before an idea merely because it appears attractive. A hideous mistake was committed 22 years ago. It must not be repeated. The Congo natives have paid too heavy a price to international thoughtlessness to be again sacrificed. Moreover, if we could suppose Belgium running the Congo on Leopoldian lines, such a condition of things would become a grave danger to the cause of international peace. What is the position of Belgium with regard to the Congo today? It is an extraordinary position, and in many respects a most humiliating one. 
Belgium has no legal rights whatsoever over the king's enterprise, which, so far as she is concerned, is a foreign state outside the control or supervision of the Belgian parliament and people. Belgium cannot even insist upon information being tendered to her as to the financial and general management of that enterprise by the King's Brussels staff, although Belgium has loaned over one million sterling to King Leopold as African sovereign, on which she receives no interest, and although she lends King Leopold the officers of her army to assist him in maintaining the rubber slave trade, and her diplomatists and consuls to defend it. This state of affairs has been brought about by the subservience to the royal will of Monsieur Dismet Dinea, the Belgian Premier, who in all matters relating to the Congo has placed the interests of King Leopold I and the interests of Belgium a long way afterwards. This his lengthened tenure of office, due to the break-up of the old Liberal Party, the fear of socialist legislation among the middle classes, and the preponderance of the voting power of those classes at the polls, owing to the existing elective system, and the undoubted increase in the country's prosperity, has enabled Monsieur de Smet-Denaire to do with impunity. He has been in power 23 years, covering the whole period of the rise and enforcement of the rubber slave trade. Monsieur de Smet-Denaire's predecessors were, to some extent at any rate, independent of the king's influence, but his docility has been remarkable, and as a reward he has been ennobled, a privilege never granted to his forerunners, although men of far greater personality and mental calibre. Believed to be above reproach in his private life, politically he is the king's creature, and the members of his cabinet are mere figureheads. It is a puppet government of which the strings are pulled by the king who, through the veil of a constitutional monarchy, exercises with increasing force a despotic will, riding roughshod over constitutional foundations. Never was the monarch's trend of mind in this regard shown more clearly than in his recent manifesto, in which he lays down the law in matters affecting the interests of Belgium as though no constitutional formulae and limitations existed. The events which have led up to the position in which Belgium finds herself in regard to the Congo may be briefly summarised. After he had obtained the separate and collective recognition of his African enterprise from the United States of America and the European powers, King Leopold applied for the sanction of the Belgian chambers to his assuming the title of Sovereign of the Congo State. This Fusion of the two crowns, as it is called, was secured, not without opposition, by that Belgian statesman whose high reputation extends beyond the boundaries of his country, Monsieur Bernat. It will be borne in mind that in those days the king proclaimed, as he still proclaims, mirabile dictu, that he was working solely in the interests of Belgium. In a letter to Monsieur Bernat, dated August fifth, 1889, the king communicated to that statesman a will bequeathing to Belgium after his death all his sovereign rights over the Congo, as they are recognised by the declarations, conventions and treaties concluded since 1884 between the foreign powers on the one side, the International Association of the Congo and the Independent State of the Congo on the other. 
the words italicised should be carefully retained. The king's sovereign rights were indeed recognised, but the interpretation which the king has since placed upon those sovereign rights has not been recognised. It has been repudiated emphatically by the British government, and were the same interpretation adopted by his possible successor, that repudiation, with all that it involves, would hold good. The king intimated in the above letter that, if before his death it should be agreeable to the country, i.e. Belgium, to establish closer links with the Congo, I should not hesitate to place them at its disposal. I should be happy to see it, our African work, during my lifetime in the full enjoyment of their possession. This free gift of the Congo to Belgium by a patriotic monarch was accepted by the Belgian chambers in July 1890 on the following terms. Belgium was to have the right to annex the Congo at any time within the ensuing ten years. She was to advance one million pounds sterling to the king's enterprise, paying £200,000 down and £80,000 per annum during the specified period. No interest was to be demanded from the king, but if at the expiration of the agreement Belgium refused definitely to annex, then the loan would bear interest at 3.5%. No further financial liabilities were to be incurred by the king without the assent of the Belgian chambers, a most reasonable proviso since Belgium, from that date onwards, stood in the light of prospective heir, and one which a monarch working in the interests of Belgium was bound to observe, apart from his plighted word. This free gift, then, was secured by Belgium at a first cost of £1 million, plus interest, to the Belgian taxpayer. In 1898, the Count de Merode westerloo brought forward an annexation project, the king worked against it secretly, and the socialists opposed it with the greatest violence, especially when it transpired in the course of the debate that the king had broken his word, had borrowed £250,000 from Monsieur de Brown de Tiege, that the time limit was about to expire, and that with its expiration this astute banker would come into possession for ever of a slice of territory, according to the terms of his private bargain with the king, on the Congo, five times the size of Belgium. The patriotism of King Leopold was equal already, it will be observed, to the alienation of a substantial portion of the patrimony of his prospective heir. The annexation project was withdrawn, and the chambers voted the money required to keep out Monsieur de Brown de Tiege. Thus, this free gift was secured at a second cost of £250,000, total cost up to 1895 £1,250,000 plus interest, to the Belgian taxpayer. When the time limit approached for the expiration of the agreement of 1890, i.e. in 1901, Monsieur Bernard drafted and presented an annexation bill. The government appeared at first to acquiesce, the socialists opposed, but the liberal leaders were in favour, and Monsieur Bernard's bill was assured of a large majority. Then came the king's dramatic intervention. The infamous decrees of 1891 too, 
which I had converted the Congo state into a piratical undertaking and drenched the Congo territories with blood, had also resulted in the acquisition of enormous revenues, and many more were in store. Future prospects were brilliant. The king was no longer eager to place the Congo in the hands of the Belgian people, no longer anxious to give them the full enjoyment of his patriotic schemes. He addressed a letter to Monsieur Wurster, one of the leaders of the clerical majority, and as devoted a henchman as Monsieur de Schmet de Nair, who communicated it to an astonished house. It was blunt, autocratic, to the point. If annexation were voted, then, that is to say, before the time has come when annexation can give to Belgium all the benefits which I wish to assure her, the sovereign would refuse to administer the Congo during the inevitable interregnum. In other words, he would withdraw the whole machinery of government. The annexationists were nonplussed. The cabinet went over to the king. No law existed for the governing of colonial possessions. The absolutism of the king's act was glossed over by the government depositing a projected law for the above purpose. The Belgian chambers were powerless. The time limit expired. With it even the shadowy control formerly exercised by Belgium over the king's African enterprise expired also, and the latter became completely independent. The chambers had to bow to the inevitable, but not without many a speech of indignant and weighty protest. The liberal leaders declared that their acquiescence was the acquiescence of resignation, a solution which in our view is essentially provisional. Monsieur Delantier, a prominent member of the clerical majority, exclaimed, the new position which has been created for us and which totally excludes Belgium from any intervention in Congo affairs is going to place us in an untenable situation to undergo all liabilities without our having the least power or the least liberty of action. No one in the world has ever consented to accept a responsibility which excludes the right of action and liberty. From the Belgian point of view, it will be liability for the acts of others. From the foreign point of view, it will remain our liability. But the king got his own way, thanks to Monsieur de Smet de Nair, who has pigeonholed his projected law for the government of the colonial possessions of Belgium ever since, although urgency was claimed for it at the time, and the situation today is that which it has been since 1901, that which Monsieur Bernard described it to be in the debate of last March. We can no longer obtain accounts or information of any kind, and, notwithstanding our triple position of presumptive heirs, furnishers of men and money and creditors, we are, from the judicial point of view, in exactly the same situation towards the Congo, as the other states represented at the Conference of Berlin, which declaration Monsieur de Smet de Nair endorsed by the words, That is quite accurate. When we discuss Congo affairs here, remarked Mr. Hymans, one of the foremost leaders of the Liberal Party, in the course of the aforesaid debate, the government declares itself incompetent to reply, and immediately afterwards we see the same minister, who has sheltered himself behind this non-possumus, speak and explain himself 
not as a minister of the Belgian government, but as an advocate of the Congo state. I do not understand how the head of a government does not realise how abnormal and shocking such a situation is. In the course of the March 1906 debate to which I have referred, the Belgian Chamber passed a resolution in favour of proceeding without delay to the projected law on the administration of the colonial possessions of Belgium. The Chamber meets in November. Meanwhile, King Leopold, frightened for his revenues, has again flung out an ultimatum, fitting pendant to that of 1901. In his manifesto, he roundly declares that if Belgium ever annexes the Congo, she must respect all engagements which he may have made with third parties. She must inherit the obligations to diminish in no manner the integral revenues or the domaine privé and domaine de la Courant. As for the domaine de la Courant, its revenues are forever inalienable. In other words, Belgium must bind herself to maintain unimpaired the atrocious system of pillage and grinding oppression under which these revenues are acquired and which would disappear with the disappearance of that system. Her control must be forever excluded from the domaine de la Courant, e.g. from a portion of the Congo ten times the size of Belgium. She must take over all the debts which the king has contracted and respect existing rubber companies whose administrators are co-partners with the king. The king is good enough to add that in accordance with his immutable patriotism, he will allow Belgium to annex when he considers she is in a position to reap the fullest advantages from the Congo patrimony, but that if the members of his Brussels staff, to whom the manifesto is addressed, are respectfully asked when that happy moment is likely to arrive, they will reply that the patriotic monarch has nothing to say at present. What aspect does the free gift of 1889 take on in 1906? A. A free gift which the royal giver withholds ad infinitum. B. A free gift for which he has obtained £1,250,000 out of the Belgian taxpayer free of interest. C. A free gift which he has saddled with nominal liabilities, ex the above, of £9,700,000, and with positive liabilities, the amount of which he carefully conceals from his prospective heirs. D. A free gift, the potential value of which is decreasing every year with the blood-stained revenues he and his associates are drawing from it. E. A free gift, for which he has acquired from Belgium the services of her officers, diplomatists and consuls, sheltered the infamies of his African rule in the folds of the Belgian flag, and in the name of patriotism, sullied her fair fame throughout the world. Is there on record a similar instance of a trusting, ill-informed nation being swindled so outrageously and treated so contemptuously by a foreign monarch presiding over its destinies? The Congo enterprise has certainly created in Belgium a taste for foreign commercial expansion and has given an impetus to Belgian industry abroad. That is undeniable. But at what a price? So far as the Congo is concerned, Belgium as a nation derives little or no benefit from it. 
There is no trade with the natives. The produce of the country is extracted by force. Hence the exports from Belgium to the Congo are insignificant. On the other hand, the pernicious ideals of colonial policy introduced by the king have worked moral havoc among a section at least of the well-to-do bourgeois classes of the country. The army has become impregnated with a detestable virus. The old slave trade spirit has everywhere made inroads. The nemesis is certain, is indeed approaching with strides more rapid than most persons suppose. There are several other points of view to be considered, both Belgian and non-Belgian. What are the principal features of Monsieur de Smet-Dinaire's projected law? They are such that if annexation took place on those lines, nothing would be changed except that a colonial minister would replace a secretary, and that colonial minister might very possibly be Monsieur de Smet-Dinaire himself, to whom it is said King Leopold has offered the appointment under certain contingencies. The man who has declared as the pivotal basis and justification of an African undertaking that the native is entitled to nothing would be a worthy successor to Messrs. de Cuvillers, Lebricht and Rogmans. Monsieur de Smet-Dinaire's projected law retains the whole civil, judicial, financial, military and administrative organisation created by the king. The king remains invested with the sole executive power. The finances are, as before, controlled by him absolutely. He drafts the budgets and registers the laws. The members of the judiciary are, as before, subject to the executive will and revocable ad nutum. The minister would have a seat in Parliament and could only be interrogated once a year when he presented his annual report. He would be, in effect, quite outside cabinet or parliamentary control, subject only to the king. It is easy to describe the dominating idea which presided over the elaboration of this project to retain in the hands of the sovereign all colonial affairs, withhold the latter as far as possible from parliamentary interference, establish the financial independence of the colony. These, without a doubt, are the objects which its authors have had in view. In other words, Belgium would in appearance become responsible. In reality, she would, once more, be wax in the king's hands. It is, I think, inconceivable that annexation on this basis could be driven through the Belgium chamber, especially in view of the revelations of the Commission of Inquiry and of the contents of the recent manifesto, which seeks to bind down the Belgians to conditions which no people with an ounce of dignity could agree to. But assuming the incredible to happen, a solution such as this could not be accepted by public opinion outside of Belgium. In truth, it would be no solution, but an aggravation of existing evils, at least from the international point of view. Then there is another point, and a very pertinent one. Annexation of the Congo by Belgium on the smet Dinaire Royal Manifesto basis I look upon, as I have said, as utterly impossible, and I do not think I shall be contradicted. But is a majority of the Belgian Chamber prepared to annex at all, even on national lines, which are not the King's lines? 
even at the price of a conflict with the king, a conflict which would necessarily be of a most determined and implacable character, the liabilities, material and moral, are tremendous. Large sections of the country are economically exhausted. The decrease of the population is appalling. By a careful computation, but which, of course, can only be hypothetical, based upon accessible positive data relating to depopulation, an analysis of the whole evidence which has been accumulating since 1890, the ivory and rubber output, the quantities of staple food supplies wrung from the people, the spread of disease, etc., I estimate that in the last 15 years the population of the Congo has been decreasing at a minimum rate of 100,000 per annum, or say 1,500,000 in the past 15 years. I am convinced that is the very lowest computation compatible with accuracy. Consul Casement considers it far too low. His opinion is that the last decade has witnessed a decline in the population by nearly three millions. Of the two opinions, his is likely to be the soundest, because he has seen with his own eyes the effects of the Leopoldian system upon communities, which he knew in former years to be populous and thriving, and because he is a servant of the crown with 20 years African experience. It will take at least two, possibly three generations, for the country to recover from the havoc of the last 15 years. If the Congo is to be administered, not pirated, if the produce of the soil, e.g. the rubber and gum copal, is to be acquired in future by legitimate purchase instead of by pillage, then there will be an immense and immediate fall in the output and, concurrently, in the so-called public revenues. The native peoples in the exploited rubber zones are crushed, broken, sick unto death of the very name of rubber. Rubber is death. Vatafi Boleiwa has become the motto of these races. With the withdrawal from the villages of the armed sentry, backed by overwhelming force behind him, with the cessation of hostage-taking and the 101 other concomitants of the Leopoldian system, an immense sigh of relief would arise from the equatorial forest and the natural reaction would set in. Commerce as a substitute for force would revive only by slow, very slow degrees, and for many years to come, even if the huge army were cut down one half and strict economy exercised in other ways, Belgium could only hope to run her dependency at a heavy loss. The flow of gold from the Congo would be stopped and the enterprises created from it and dependent upon its maintenance would collapse. Then again, the burden of debts, with which this free gift has been thoughtfully loaded by the giver for the greater benefit of the prospective heir, is such that, with the certainty of lean years ahead under decent administration, any Belgian statesman worthy of the name would hesitate once, twice, and yet again before asking the country to assume it. Thoughtful Belgians are reckoning all this up. They realise that the temporary prosperity of the Congo, that is to say what passes for prosperity, the gold in the shape of rubber rolling out of it, depends exclusively upon the system of oppression and tyranny to which the natives are subjected. 
they know that the public edifices which are being reared in Brussels as an advertisement for the king out of Congo rubber and Congo loans and which Belgium does not require, Belgium will have to pay for if she annexes and pay through the nose for since they have been constructed regardless of economy. They know that with every year that passes, the indebtedness of the king's enterprise increases, and with it the prospective liabilities of Belgium. They know that money has been borrowed at 28% discount, and that Belgium, if she annexes, will be mulcted to that extent with the bankers who have financed the king. Such, then, is the position in which Belgium finds herself, thanks to the complicity of her government with Leopold Africanus. The clerical, or conservative, party has blindly followed Monsieur de Smetdenea at the price of the abandonment by the king of his former agitation in favour of the personal military system of which he was once so strong an advocate. It has given him carte blanche so far as the Congo is concerned, and only now is that party beginning to realise the abyss which yawns beneath its feet and the countries. On the one hand, annexation appears the only escape from the intolerable moral position which leaves Belgium besmirched by the acts of others, as Monsieur de Lanchier predicted five years ago. But annexation on lines compatible with self-respect and common sense is barred by the king, and short of a complete capitulation on his part, could be forced through only by a definite rupture between sovereign and parliament. On the other hand, annexation even at the price of a rupture appears, the more closely it is looked at, as a highly questionable proceeding in the light of national interests. Repudiation, absolute and entire, would carry with it of necessity the withdrawal of all Belgian officers from the Congo army, following the example of Italy, and the sundering of all diplomatic connections with the king's African enterprise. And this, of course, would also spell a definite rupture. Amidst all this fog of doubt and uncertainty in which the Belgian people find themselves enfolded, a question is beginning to form itself on the lips of men. The fusion of the two crowns was acquiesced in by the nation. A nation can revoke the assent secured under false pretenses. Can the wearer of the Belgian crown be allowed any longer to continue the holder of the Congo sovereignty? If King Leopold does not abate his pretensions, that question may well be answered by a negative, which might have results more far-reaching than the elevation, before natural causes called for it, of Prince Albert to the throne of Belgium. End of section 19